Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our senior pastor, Nate Holdridge. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. So we've, we've looked at the prophets, we've looked at the angels here in Hebrews, and now Moses. For Jesus, verse 3, has been counted worthy of much, uh, excuse me, of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the, the, the builder of all things is God. Now Moses, verse 5, was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us understand this today. Lord, we do pray and ask that you would teach us and instruct us from your word today. Help us to have, Lord, insight. And the, the way that this passage, Lord, was designed to uh, refocus and repoint these Jewish Christians a couple thousand years ago. We pray, Lord, that you would use this passage to shape and point us towards your very best, Lord, for our lives. And uh, Lord, in this life that we're living, we, we want to have everything, Lord. We want to partake of everything that you have for us. We don't want to fall short, Lord, of it in any way, your plans, your desires for us. We pray, Lord, that you teach us from this passage today. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen. Amen. Okay, so in the, in the Old Testament, way back in the days of the book of Genesis and Exodus, the people of Israel, as a small family of 70-plus individuals, moved to Egypt. They were there as guests of Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, and their leader, Joseph, was... Pharaoh's right-hand man. And for years, they grew in what was called the land of Goshen inside of Egypt. And God blessed them. They grew and grew and grew numerically, and they worked with the Egyptians, and the Egyptians worked with them. But as time went on, as the centuries unfolded, those same people that started out as 70 or so descendants of Jacob became a couple million people strong. And the pharaohs forgot their former allegiance to the Hebrew people and began to treat them as mere slaves. Eventually, they cried out to the Lord. They remembered the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, their ancestors, their forefathers, and they cried out to God. And so God sent Moses, who will look at in this passage and talk about a little bit later, God sent Moses as a deliverer for the people of Israel. Uh, he came at, at 80 years of age to Pharaoh with his older brother Aaron and pronounced to Pharaoh, let, God says, let my people go. 
And after a multitude of plagues was brought from God onto Egypt and particularly upon the Egyptian false gods that they had worshipped, Pharaoh allowed the people of Israel to be set free from their slavery. They went out into the wilderness where they were on their way to a land that God had promised to them. You see, God didn't just look at their condition and say, you're encompassed by people who are enslaving you, and I just want to set you free from that. No, he wanted to do two things. He wanted to set them free from their slavery, but then bring them to their own land, their own territory, their own place where they could thrive and flourish and grow and create a society that reflected God's heart and God's desire and God's will for them and for their lives and for the world. But unfortunately, before they went into the promised land, they sent 12 spies to go check out the land. They found that it was inhabited and that there were giants, strong militaries that existed in that land. And so the 10 spies came back and two of them said, God has given it to us. He'll fight for us. But 10 of them said, we're too small. We're like grasshoppers in their sight. And the people of God believed the 10 and unbelief filled their hearts. And so God said, this generation will not go in to the land, but your children." And your children's children will occupy the land. And so that generation for 40 years wandered in the wilderness. They were still God's people. God gave them the law, the Ten Commandments. He gave them the ceremonial law. He gave them the tabernacle and the priesthood. And he provided for them. Their clothes did not wear out for the whole 40 years that they wandered in the wilderness. He fed them miraculously with manna. They were clearly God's people but they were certainly not living in the very best that God had for their lives. Now the reason that I'm telling this story is because the people that received this letter, the letter to the Hebrews, originally were Jewish Christians who were in a similar moment of decision. They believed in Jesus. He had set them free from their slavery to sin. He had forgiven them of all their transgressions. They were now one with and in Christ and therefore one with God. But they had begun to disbelieve that the ultimate and full and complete and total life is found in Jesus. And they were starting to think that perhaps we need to go back to the ceremonies and the structures that we used to be part of when we were full-on engaged in Judaism. Now you might be sitting here today and saying to yourself, well, Nate, this sounds like a couple of stories from a way previous era in our time and in our world. You're talking about thousands and thousands of years ago, both with these Jewish Christians and their decision and the believers who came out of their slavery in Egypt. But I think that this passage and this story, this concept, this chapter is so important for modern believers because all of us are making this decision every single day. Do we believe that Jesus Christ has the very best life in store for us. We might be saved. We might be redeemed. But we still have a decision to make. Will I enter into the full life that Christ has for me? Or will I wander in the wilderness and live a Christian life that is only part way what the Lord has 
for me. Let me give you a couple of examples of who I'm talking about today or the danger that we might be in. Some of you are younger believers, and what I mean by that is you're new in Christ, but also you're young in age. And you're beginning to realize, I'm sure you already recognize it totally and completely, that the culture, the society, the generation that you are living in, it is absolutely contrary to the gospel, to scripture, to the word of God. Perhaps you've discovered that you are an alien in the world that you are living in. That's actually Bible speak to describe us. We are sojourners, pilgrims, aliens walking about on this planet. And you will be tempted as you live this Christian life to manipulate the clear teachings of God's word to make them more palatable to the culture and world that you are living in but if you do, you are in danger of missing out on Jesus' very best for your life. Or you might be a person who originally in Christ, you were all for the Lord, you were committed to God, you were walking with Him. But as your career began to build, as your business began to mature, the things of God began to take a back burner. And you began to think to yourself that real fulfillment comes in career advancement rather than in whatever advancement the Lord has for my life and ultimately and completely and totally in and because of Him. And you have a decision to make. Will I go forward with the Lord and receive everything that He has for my life? Or will I live in this middle kind of ground, not receiving everything that He has for me? You might be a husband or a father leading a family. And at the beginning, you were gung-ho, bringing your family to church and bringing them to the Lord and opening up the Bible for your kids. But they started looking at you sideways. They started getting bored with your Bible studies and your scriptural meditations. And they started having things going on. And you said, you know, I'm not, they don't need to go all that often. And you began to drift from the full thing that the Lord had for your life. You might be single and saying, I want to live a single life as unto the Lord, but the enemy begins to whisper in your ear, you will not be satisfied fully, really, completely, until you have a person to share your life with, rather than the Lord being the one who is the ultimate satisfaction in your life. And if he chooses to put a person into your life, then wonderful, but he is the one that can satisfy your soul. You see, Jesus is offering to every person in this room today, every person listening to this teaching, he is offering to you his fullest version of life. But the question is, is that where you want to go? Do you want to go into the fullest life that Jesus Christ has for you? Show of hands, anybody? Anybody want that? Okay. It would be a different Bible study if, you know, you didn't want to. All right, so... The text is going to tell us three ways to enter in. And the first way is that we have to consider Jesus. So let's read again in verse 1 and following. He says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Now, now, when he starts this way, what he's trying to do is bring us back to what he said in chapter 2. And I'll just give you a quick reminder of that. What we learned in chapter 2 is that though the angelic realm is amazing, humanity was made a little lower than the angels by God so that God could crown us with glory and honor and so the creation could be in subjection to us, not to angels. In other words, human beings were supposed to have dominion over the world 
that we occupy. But we lost our dominion, we saw last week, through sin. And so Jesus also came a little lower than the angels to be one of us, to become human, so that he could be crowned with the glory and honor that we were supposed to be crowned with, so that he could bring many sons and daughters to glory. In other words, if you believe in Jesus, that he came, God the Son, to live a human, perfect, sinless life for you on your behalf and die on the cross for your sin, that he rose from the grave. If you believe in him, trust in him, then he is designing to bring you back to the glory that we originally lost through our sin. So what the author is doing in verse 1 is reminding us of who we are. We've been, if, you're, if you're a believer, you're saved by the Lord. You're a holy brother or sister in Christ, and you share Jesus's heavenly calling. And so what he tells that group of people to do, what he tells us to do is he says, what I want you to do is simply this, consider Jesus. If you want to enter into the full, rich life in Christ, one of the first things you must do is consider Jesus. Now in a moment, he's going to talk about Moses. But here, what he wants us to know is that Jesus is superior to Moses and that we must continually, throughout the duration of our lives, be thinking about Christ, be considering Jesus. Take as an example, physical exercise. You know, some people say, you know, move it or lose it. And the concept is, of course, that you can, at one season of your life, you can eat well, you can exercise, you can move constantly, and your body can be fit. But if you begin to change your habits, you begin eating poorly, you begin sitting around all the time, your body is going to change. You need to, through physical exertion, keep your body in physical strength and health. It's the same idea in our relationship with the Lord. We must continue to consider Jesus. Or perhaps think of it like this. When you go down to the beach, right when the sun is about to set, you know, we just get the most beautiful sunsets here on the Monterey Peninsula, and we get to go and see the sun, you know, setting over the ocean. And I love the sunrise as well, but every single sunrise, every single sunset, they are all unique. You could be in the same place every single time that that sunset occurs, and something is different. Whether it's there on the shore or in the sky, there is something that is different. It might just be you that's different. A day older, a year older, a decade older, and it just hits you in a different kind of way. That's what it means for us to consider Jesus. That at every single stage of our lives, we must be in constant consideration of Christ. So you might ask at this point, all right, well, if that is what helps me get into the promised land, so to speak, that the Lord has for my life to live the fullest life, I'm just supposed to consider Jesus. Do you have anything more than that, Nate? Is there, is there any other detail about what I'm supposed to consider about Jesus? Well, I'm so glad that you asked that question because the text goes on to tell us there in verse 1 that we must consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. And I realize that titles like apostle and high priest, these are very Bible-y kind of titles. You know, apostle, what, what is that? You, you might think of Apostle Paul or Apostle Peter, Apostle Matthew. These men that were the disciples of Christ who he sent out, they began to be known by the early church as apostles. They were the authors of Scripture. 
They were given a message from Jesus. They recalled that message and under the inspiration of of the Spirit recorded that message for every subsequent generation of the church to be able to read and study. So we love the apostles. Here, though, he calls Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. For this, you have to go back to the original meaning of the word apostle. It means that it's one who has been sent out with a message. So this person, an apostle, is one who is a messenger with a message. Now, from what we've already studied in the book of Hebrews, what we've discovered is that Jesus is the greater messenger than the angels or the prophets. And now we'll discover even Moses, who has the greatest message that has ever been given, partly because he's not only the messenger with the message, but his own body and blood is the message itself. So here's the thing. If you want to enter into the fullness that Christ has for you, as you're considering Jesus, you must consider that his message is the supreme message with the supreme answers to life's greatest dilemmas and problems. You see, so often, I think, as Christians, we turn to the Lord for the forgiveness of sins. We come into Christian community and relationship, but with every other problem in life, we just look out there. We look to the world. We look to popular opinion. We look to the guides of humanity rather than continually saying, man, I've got to consider Jesus, this apostle and high priest of my confession. What would he say about this situation? What would he say about this decision? But once you drift from that, you'll begin to live in a lesser version of what the Lord has for your life. Now let's go on in the text, reading on in verse 2 and 3 and in verse 4 to see what else we might be able to consider about Jesus. He says, who was, verse 2, faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. You know, if, you, if, if a builder builds a house, we've got some builders that are here today, and I totally admire you because I, I am terrible with anything in the realm of construction or handyman kind of work. I do not have that gift. I destroy things. When I try to fix things, I just make them worse. But when a, when a builder builds a home, you know, the the house might have glory. You might look at it and say, wow, that's amazing. But if it is amazing, then if the builder walks up, the designer walks up and says, yeah, I built this. You go, man, how did you do that? It's just really cool how you schemed all this and put it all together, you know, kind of thing. That's what he's communicating. He's saying, look, Moses had glory. He was great. But Jesus is the builder of Moses' house. He's even greater. Four, verse 4, every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Another thing that we can consider about Jesus that helps us to enter into the full life that he has for us is that he was the builder of everything in that Old Testament era and also the builder or the creator of all things. That's what verse 3 and 4 are teaching us. Now, Now think about it. Moses, he was a pretty impressive guy. I mean, just I realize that you're all happy that we live on this side of the cross, but let me just tell you a little bit about Moses. He lived a fascinating life. When Moses was born, 
the Egyptian pharaoh had determined that every Hebrew baby boy should be killed. And Moses' family was Hebrew, and so they feared when they were going through that pregnancy. And when Moses was born and they realized, okay, we got a baby boy on our hands, Moses' parents, along with the Hebrew midwives, conspired together to hide Moses, to keep him out of the Egyptian official's view. And for a little while, as a little baby, he grew up in his parents' home. I'm sure, I mean, it's possible that they dressed him up like a little girl and stuff like that, you know, put pink on him and everything, so that when they went out in public, it's like, hey, you know, oh, cute little girl you have there, you know, or whatever. But this moment came where they could hide him no longer. And so his parents were led to take Moses, put him in a basket, cover it with pitch or tar so that it would float, and put him in the Nile River. They waited and watched as this Little basket floated down the river. They were hoping that the right person would see this basket, see this child, and adopt him into their family. And sure enough, just as they had planned, the right person, Pharaoh's daughter, was out there in the water bathing, and she saw this basket, maybe even heard the baby cry. And so she sent one of her servants to go to pick up this basket, find out what's floating out there in the water. Now, the Bible says that Moses was a, a, a beautiful baby, and this was God's strategy because when they came and saw Moses, they looked at him and they're like, oh, look at how beautiful. I mean, if he'd had like cone head or something, you know, who knows what they would have thought, but they looked at him, they're like, oh, he's a beautiful little baby. And the Pharaoh's daughter said, I'm going to bring him into my family. It was at that point that Moses' older sister came out of the reeds and said, hey, I noticed that you found a little baby boy there. Do you need a Hebrew mother to nurse this child? And so Moses grew up almost simultaneously in his own biological family, but also as a daughter of Pharaoh or a grandson to Pharaoh, excuse me, a daughter of Pharaoh's daughter and the grandson of Pharaoh himself. And when he was about 40 years of age, realizing that he was both Hebrew, but also had these Egyptian connections, he assumed that God was going to use him to set the people of Israel free. He murdered an Egyptian man, though, one day in a, in a desire to defend a Hebrew man, buried him in the sand, and that murder became public. And so Moses had to flee for his life. For 40 years, he lived out in the wilderness, taking care of his father-in-law's sheep because he found a family out there and got married. But at 80 years of age, God spoke to him from a bush that burned yet was not consumed on the backside of the wilderness. And God revealed himself to Moses. He said, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And he sent Moses back to Egypt to set the people of Israel free, plague after plague after plague, and miracle after miracle and then they got into the wilderness and God called him to the mountaintop, gave him the law, the Ten Commandments, twice. Because the first time he came down and they'd broken all the commandments already, so he threw them on the ground. And then later God said, you've got to come back up with a fresh set of stones and I'll, I'll write those commandments again. They got the ceremonial law of God. God showed them the design for the tabernacle and the priesthood and the laws that would govern the nation of Israel. And after all of that was set, Moses would go to the tabernacle every day and he would hang out with God. And God spoke to Moses as a man speaks to his friend. And when those conversations was over, he would come out and his face was glowing with the afterglow of the glory of God. So I'm trying to 
demonstrate for you that Moses' relationship and walk with God was incredible. Right? Like I said, we're happy we live on this side of the cross and that we're not offering sacrifices and all that kind of stuff, but Moses was special. He said to God, show me your glory. I want to see you. And God said, you can't see me fully, but I'll cover you in the cleft of the rock and pass by. And after I pass by, you can see the afterglow of my glory. And he heard the name of God. He had an incredible walk in relationship with God. But what we learn here is that Jesus, Jesus built what Moses was living in. Jesus built the world that Moses was living in. And Jesus was the author of the commandments and the tabernacle system that Moses instituted. So Jesus, we must, as we consider him, we must recognize, man, he's the author and the finisher of our faith. He is so great. But not only that, we must consider lastly in verse 5 and 6, he says, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. You know, we're, we're to consider that Jesus is the apostle and high priest of our confession. We're to consider that he's the builder of what Moses was living in and what we're living in today. But we're also to consider his extreme faithfulness. Now, this was supposed to be of utmost help to the Jewish Christians reading this letter for the first time, and it should be of utmost help to us today. Because when we are wavering, when we are weak, when we are seeking to dilute Christianity, dilute the faith, it is good for us to consider the faithfulness of Jesus. To consider that when temptation came into Jesus' life, I alluded to it last week, so I don't want to belabor the point, but when Jesus came under the crushing pressure of temptation, what did he do? He endured. He was faithful. He kept going. When people came into Jesus' life who betrayed him, denied him, turned their back upon him, disappointed him, Jesus kept on moving. He kept on enduring. Now look, I understand that sometimes a Christian will disappoint you. Sometimes a church will disappoint you. Sometimes a pastor will disappoint you. Jesus had people in his life who disappointed him, yet he was faithful. He kept moving. Jesus also when society rebuked him for being who he was, the grace and the truth that he brought and that he spoke with, when society rebuked him, he did not conform or mold to them. He just kept going. He had truth that he was here to deliver, a gospel that he was here to announce. And when the cross, the pain of the cross, was introduced into his life, Jesus was faithful. He kept on moving. And somehow this faithfulness of Jesus is supposed to help you and me today when we're considering, do I want everything that he's got for me? Do I really want to move forward? Do I really want to stick with this? Do I really want to keep going? We're to be thinking about the faithfulness of Jesus, that he's the final word, the apostle, that we're living in his world that he made, but also that he was so faithful. Somehow that faithfulness from Jesus can now be brought out of us because we're new creatures in Christ Jesus. All right, so that's a little bit about considering Jesus. That's really the bulk of what this passage is about. But now we have a warning that we'll look at for the duration of our time together in verse 7 and following. Let's check it out together. He says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and that's his way of quoting from the Old Testament, 
He, and here, here he's quoting from Psalm 95. He says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Now, I've already been talking to you about that rebellion when God wanted to bring them into the promised land and they rebelled against God. That's what this is about. They rebelled against God's clear word and will. They didn't trust the Lord, so they were kept out of God's best for their lives. So he says, On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, verse 10, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. It was kind of like just the compass inside of them was off. You ever have a car that the alignment is just off, you know, and it's just, it's just always drifting? That was the heart of the people of Israel. It was just prone to wander, to quote the old hymn. So he says, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore, verse 11, in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, like I said, the people of Israel, that generation, were they still, were they God's people? Did they belong to the Lord? Absolutely, they belonged to the Lord. God was working miracles for them. He fed them every single day for those 40 years. He gave them the tabernacle, the Ten Commandments. They had Moses. They absolutely belonged to the Lord, but they were just outside of God's greatest for their lives. And so, this is what he says to us in verse 12. He says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. This is a very severe warning, don't you think? He looks at us in the modern church, and he says, Look, you got to consider that generation. They had this moment of decision. And they heard those 10 spies and they said to themselves, we're not strong enough. We're not big enough. We're not powerful enough to go in. God will not give us the victory. And so they remained outside of God's best for their lives. And that same evil, unbelieving heart can creep into us today. This is not the author, writing to us about the potential of losing our salvation when he says, leading you to fall away from the living God. He's not talking about salvation. He's talking about God's ultimate for our lives. To be a believer that is a shadow of what we could be because unbelief has kept us from trusting in who God is. In other words, this is not mere intellectual belief, but more a trust that God is able. Like I mentioned earlier, you know, someone who might be saved, but so overcome by the trappings of money and career that it has come to the point that God has been replaced. Or someone who is saved, but is continually and always never able to come, like Paul talked about to Timothy, to come to the knowledge of the truth. They're always doing things like deconstructing the Christian faith. You ever heard that phrase? You know, I'm just, I'm, right now I'm rethinking things. I am deconstructing the Christian. Like, like for the last 2,000 years, we've just been waiting, finally, for a theologian of your caliber <laughs> that could just deconstruct it all for us and put it back together again. You know, always, you know, saved, but always living in that middle ground. Saved, but constantly stressed and living without true Christian joy. Listen to what God thinks is possible for you and for me. This comes from Galatians 5, verse 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit 
is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's a beautiful life, don't you think? But it's not the kind of life that we just kind of acquire in our own strength. There has to be a real trust in the Lord. Lord, I'm trusting you. I believe you. You know, these decisions that are in front of me, I trust that you're the one that can bring satisfaction in my life. These doctrines that I'm wrestling with and battling with that make me so foreign to the world I'm living in, I trust you, Lord, that your way is best. That simple faith can bring you into God's best for your lives. But he goes on to say in verse 13, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today. What day is it right now? It's today. It's always today, all right? He says, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Again, what we're talking about here is, okay, we've considered Jesus, but how can I guard against creeping unbelief that comes into my life? Well, I need to uh, watch out for that unbelieving heart in verse 12. But here, what we learn is we have to exhort one another every single day. This is where we really need each other. Sometimes you just need another Christian to come alongside of you and say, hey, that thing that you, th- you think is going to satisfy you, it won't satisfy you. But only the Lord can satisfy you. Sometimes you need another Christian to come alongside of you and to make that difference in your life. But, but what is required in order for us to be able to successfully exhort one another every day, as verse 13 tells us to do? Well, one thing that is required is you must have frequency, don't you think? I mean, eight times in this passage, he uses the word today. Today, you have to exhort each other. Today, you must communicate with each other. Exhort one another Every day, the text says, or as Holman Christian Standard says, encourage each other daily. So there has to be a frequency in our interaction with other believers. Now, now fortunately for us, we live in a digital age and world where this is actually possible. I mean, it's possible if you're living in a village or something like that, and you've got, you know, like your fellow 30 believers or whatever, and you see each other throughout the day as you're kind of going throughout life. And to a degree, that would be possible for us today as we go through our work and careers and our day-to-day experience. You know, it's for us to kind of collect who the different Christians are in our lives. You ever have that experience where like you discover like, whoa, they're a Christian too, you know, kind of thing. You're supposed to collect those people. Like, I didn't know, I didn't know that John was a believer, but now I know he's a believer. So now you guys encourage each other, exhort each other. But beyond that, we also live in this digital world and age where we can very quickly give exhortations and, and, and encouragements to one another just by shooting a text or sending a voice message or whatever it might be to just say, hey man, I'm thinking about you, I'm praying for you, keep on walking with the Lord. I texted a friend of mine the other day, I was just reading a psalm and it talked about walking in darkness with, with the Lord, how you, you go through times of darkness, but the Lord is with you. And I was just thinking about him because I knew he was making a big decision in his life. And so I just shot him a text. Hey man, I know you're confused. You don't know what decision to make. It feels like darkness, but the Lord is with you 
in the midst of that darkness. I'm not going to say that it like changed his life or anything like that. It was just a simple exhortation and encouragement designed to uplift. But frequency is required. In other words, community is not a convenience to fit into life, but a commitment to stick to if we're going to be able to exhort one another every day. But you know another thing that's required to be able to exhort one another every day? There has to be a degree of honesty between you and the fellow believers that you're connected to. There has to be a degree of honesty. Now, I get a little nervous when I make a point like this because I grew up in the church, I've been around the church my whole life, I've been around church people my whole life, and sometimes uh, when someone says to me, I'd like to share something honestly with you, uh, I usually don't get really excited about that. Like, oh, sweet, here we go. It's going to be enjoyable. <laughs> you know? Usually, it, it can be a harder you know, kind of word in truth. A lot of times, our honesty is disconnected from relationship or really knowing another person or respecting that there are differences of, of opinion between fellow believers and God has made us in various shapes and sizes. And sometimes people try to put a one-size-fits-all kind of grid upon someone else, and so their honesty is just trying to force them into a package they don't belong in. But when you're in community with other believers and you trust them and they trust you, honesty that is tactful yet frank is important for fellowship to be able to continue. It says in Galatians 6, verse 1, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin... You who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. How can you do that if there's no honesty? How can you do that if there isn't that communication? So honesty and frequency are required. And part of the reason why these exhortations are so important, notice it there in verse 13, he says, because we must be exhorted today so that none of us may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. See, sin is just cruising around. He's kind of personifying sin here. And he's saying it's cruising around. And what it's trying to do, it's trying to deceive you. Now, real simply, in this text, what it's trying to deceive you is to say, Jesus has a promised land, but I have a better promised land. Jesus has a full life, or he claims to, but I have an even fuller life for you. And it will try to deceive us. Now, there are easy ways to illustrate this. You know, if you have a friend who's in Christ, who's beginning to, as if maybe they're married, and they're committed to another person, you know, maritally, and in their workplace, they start flirting with somebody, and they're developing, you know, feelings for them. You know, it's very easy to kind of, in a situation like that, go, man, that's sin trying to deceive you. You know, you think that something good is there, but something good isn't there. You're going to bring ruin and hurt and harm into your whole life, you know, kind of thing. That's one easy way to illustrate it. But there are more subtle ways that we need the everyday encouragements and exhortations with other believers to help us overcome some of the ways that sin might try to deceive us. For instance, I'll just give this as an example. A couple Christians might have, you know, they might be married and they might have a child together. And as that child begins to grow, 
uh, very quickly they begin to learn that that child has a will of its own. You ever discovered that? Parents have a will of their own. And, and, and as they're watching this child, this precious little angel that Jesus gave to them grow up, they start realizing that, okay, this child, you know, sometimes I'll tell them to do something, ask them to do something, and they're clearly at that stage, like they totally know what I'm talking about. Before they can even speak, you know, they look at you. I remember my little girl, Lauren, we had this HP computer back when we were first, you know, married, and she was, she was, this was, you know, 14, 15 years ago, and she was like six months old, and that HP computer would sit on the floor of our living room. It had this blinking blue light that just would all day just, and she would go, it was the power button. And I was like, don't turn on the power button or hit the power button. It's going to, you know, reset the computer. And she'd go up to it and she'd waddle up there and she'd just look at us and she'd look at that power button and she'd put out her finger looking at that power button. We, Lauren, don't, don't, don't do it. Don't do it. And she totally knew what was going on. She couldn't actually speak and say, no, I want to do it my way. I like blue buttons and I want to push it. She couldn't do that, but she knew exactly what we were saying. And she pushed that button. Man, it was consequence time. <laughs> but a parent might grow, grow thinking to themselves, you know, they have this thing where they want to do their own thing, but when they disobey, I don't need to correct that because eventually they'll grow out of that. Man, when you're with other believers... Other believers who have been there already can help you understand they ain't growing out of that. That's what we do. We love to disobey. We love to do our own thing. One of the chief things that they need to learn is how to be obedient, how to bend their will to the will of another. So you don't have to do it in a harmful kind of way, but that if you say no and they go ahead and do it, that's an empty no if you don't do something and you're training them how to disobey for the rest of their lives. But that kind of exhortation, that is seen so often in community with other believers to be able to help us with the deceitfulness of sin that is trying to lie to us and steal from us the best life that the Lord has for us. Okay, let's close with verse 14 and following to the end of the chapter. He's just going to ask a bunch of questions. So let's read it together. He says, for verse 14, we have come to share in Christ, if indeed, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Again, he quotes from Psalm 95. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? So that's verse 16, question number one. Who were those who heard and yet rebelled? He says, it was everybody who left Egypt and led by Moses. Question number two, verse 17, and with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Here's the answer in, in the question form. Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And then our final question, verse 18, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? Here's the answer, but to those who were disobedient. It seems as if the, what the author is trying to say is, look, I want you to, verse 14, share in Christ. I want you to partake of Christ, partner with Christ, have everything that Christ has for you, but stop for a second and consider who was kept out of the fullness of God's blessing on their lives. It was these people, these people who they heard, but they rebelled. They had an opportunity, but their unbelief provoked God. And so God kept them from the fullness that they could have had 
because of their unbelief. So, verse 19, we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Look, really, the bottom line of this passage and then chapter 4, which we're going to get to in a couple of weeks because we have Christmas time and all of that uh, coming up, but when we get back into Hebrews, we'll see that ultimately to come into the fullness that God has for us, it requires belief. Now, I realize that usually when we think about belief, we're thinking about intellectual things. Here's a set of doctrines that I either believe them or I don't believe them. But again, the people of Israel, if you ask them, is God powerful? They would say, yeah, I believe that he is. But they did not trust in his power in that moment in their lives. And so for us, what this is talking about is we want to partake fully of Christ, so we must trust the Lord. We must trust he's able to take us into that full life, that we don't have to take ourselves there and that it's not found anywhere else but found in him if we're going to enter in to all that he has for us. So let me just say this in wrapping it all up. You and me, you and I, we live in a culture, we live in a society where whether it's through beliefs or just lifestyle, we will experience a constant temptation to manipulate the Christian faith, to bring it into a mushy middle kind of experience. And it just won't be the full thing that the Lord has for us. It'll be a constant everyday battle. So for us, what we need to pray and ask the Lord for is the grace and the strength to believe and trust him so that we can continue to move forward and allow him to be the one who satisfies everything in our soul. Thank you for listening. If you'd like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our senior pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.